Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 by Joel Koretko. He preaches the sixth message in our summer sermon series entitled Faith in Action, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hello, Sardis Fellowship. Uh, good to see you. It's, it's been a while, or I should say you and the, the www land out there. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a while. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be back. Uh, you, you might have wondered, if, if you know me, I'm, I'm Joel Koretko. I've been, I was an intern here for, for quite some time. I don't know if I still hold, but uh, I've been away with my family uh, in Oxford and finishing up a degree there. I know some of you are probably wondering what's going on with that. So just quickly, I'm uh, just at the very end of the, the PhD. I have my, la- my final draft that's going to be taken in for examination. I think I'll be done probably today, actually, uh, with just biography. So I'm just about at the end. It's going to be a few months, and then a few months after that, hopefully, to graduate. Uh, so that, that, that's where, we, where we've been. We're back. I'm home now. I'm just finishing writing. And yeah, so you'll be seeing me around. Another thing, I, th- I think that you'd be, you'll be happy to hear for an update. Uh, so I know a lot of you have been praying for me over the years. Uh, it's, it's, and you know that, that I've had a bit of a, uh, quite a, a struggle with, with chronic pain, particularly chronic back pain. Uh, well, I don't want to go into the whole story here now. Uh, and if you wanted to talk about it, feel free to, to, we'll go for coffee or something like that. But I think it's really cool that we can, we can finally say, and I can finally say to you, that uh, my, my chronic back pain's gone uh, after seven years. So, like, we can thank God together for that. Um, I, I, can, I can thank God for that. And thank God for all of you for praying for me. Honestly, it, it, I couldn't have done it without you. And specific people in this church came alongside me for those seven years. And I, I don't know what I would have done without you. So thank you. Okay. To, to, to the message here. So a while back, Rod mentioned that uh, an email went around and it asked which character uh, mentioned in Hebrews 11 that we wanted to preach on. He then said that we will have to fight over who doesn't, doesn't want a particular character. I immediately emailed him back saying, I absolutely want the story and there would not need to be any fight over it. And of course, right after this, tough guy Tim said that I got off lucky for not having to wrestle him for it. So just for the record, uh, I will have you know right here now under holy oath and in this holy place that I can count about five times in the last 15 years that Tim and I have wrestled, and there's only ever been one outcome. So just, just wanted to clear that up publicly. Now, while we're on the topic of violence, I'm going to go right ahead and say that today's Bible passage, it's just that. It, it's not for the faint of heart, and I would definitely consider this passage to be among the PG-13 kind of stories. I'm going to put that out as a disclaimer now. And you're no doubt wondering, what are we talking about today? Well, let's take a look at the passage in Hebrews. Over a couple of months, we've been going through a list of people from the Old Testament who were, com- who were commended for their faith. Today, we arrive at this text. That text there. <laughs> and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, accomplished justice, 
obtained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, extinguished the effectiveness of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in battle, put to flight enemy battle lines. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Lots of you probably know King David and Samuel, but these uh, four other four characters, the first ones, are probably less popular, and I imagine the only Barak many of you know is the one who recently sat in a big white building in D.C., and, well, that, that's good because today I am going to show you how this text is, in fact, a biblical prophecy about Barack Obama. Of course, no, just kidding. Uh, the Bible definitely does not reference him in this passage. No, today we are going, we're in the book of the Old Testament called Judges. If you need help finding it, it's in the seventh book of the Bible, right after the book of Joshua. We will be looking at chapters four and five, five just a little bit. Oh, and here's a cool fact free of charge for you super Bible nerds out there. Archaeologists in Israel just found what I think they claim is the oldest Hebrew inscription ever found. It's dated to about 1200 BC. It's here. And that, that, that is about the time of the book of Judges. And guess what it says? Jeruv Baal. That's right. It says Jeruv Baal. Can you believe it? Well, the two of you out there who know your Bibles inside out can, can't believe it. But for the rest of us, Jerub Baal is another name of what character in the book of Judges? He's in the very next story after this chapter, Gideon. That's 3,200-year-old inscription has that name. That's crazy. Now, we, we can't claim it's referring to Gideon for sure because another person could have had that name. But it does show us that this book called Judges is historically accurate when it comes to the names it uses for the time period that it's at. I thought that was really, really interesting. Okay, so let's go to our story. Chapter 4 begins like this. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And Ehud, the previous leader of Israel, died. So Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, and he was living in Harosheth Hagoyim. And the Israelites cried to Yahweh, as he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. Okay, so you probably want some context as to what's going on here. I mean, why on earth is God selling his people into the hand of an evil king? Sounds a bit Old Testament, right? Maybe a touch harsh. In order to understand what is going on in this book of the Bible, you absolutely must, without reservation, know what's going on in the story. How did we get here? So in 60 seconds, I'm going to bring you back up to speed. Okay, and you need to stay with me if you want to, if you want to know what, what this story is all about. So, why is God handing his people over to an evil king? Well, where are the Israelites? They are in the land of Canaan. What is the land of Canaan? This is the place that God promised to give to the descendants of their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham. Uh, Rod actually talked about the story a few weeks ago. Here in the book of Judges, God is in the middle of fulfilling a promise to Abraham. And what did Rod show us was the purpose of the promise to Abraham. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it says God told Abraham that he's going to make a nation from him, that is Israel. And then God says, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. All And all families of the earth will be blessed in you. God chose a people so that he can use them to bless the whole world. And why does the world need to be blessed? That's the story from the very first chapter, um, chapter one of Genesis, all the way to chapter 12 with Abraham. The long and short of it is that a long time ago, in a garden far, far away, uh, humans had the opportunity to be with God and be free from evil. 
There was peace, true peace among God, creation, humans, but humanity decided that they knew better than God, and so God let them go their own way. He removed their, his protection and blessing from them. They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and God puts a heavenly bouncer outside of the entrance with a spinning, flaming sword blocking the way. And yes, that's in the Bible. Check it out. And immediately, the very first thing to happen outside of the garden is a certain brother named Cain gets jealous of his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and tells him, sin is crouching at your door, and that Cain has to overcome his desire to give in to sin. But what does he do instead? Cain murders Abel in cold blood. It's the first sin outside of the garden, the sin of unrighteous murder. And I want you to keep this story in mind as we continue. So fast forward. Just before Israel comes into Canaan, God makes a deal with them. They are to keep his commands and worship him alone. The Israelites are going to be God's representatives on earth, and he is putting his reputation on the line with them. So if they follow him, God will be among them, protecting them and creating a new Eden in the land of Canaan. If they don't, then God does not promise to make a new Eden or to protect them. And here's the kicker. We already read it. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain. This phrase is repeated throughout the book of Judges, not to mention the whole Old Testament. Um, and God give, in this instance, God gives Israel over to Jabin and Sisera. He removes his protection. Another phrase that gets repeated in the book of Judges is also here. It says, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh. For what seems like a, a moment each time, we read over and over that Israel snaps out of its stupor and actually seeks God. And when you know, God answers. He provides a solution. And here it is. Now at that time, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her for judgment. She sent and called for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, march to Mount Tabor, and take 10,000 men from the descendants of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the wadi of Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you do not go with me, I will not go. She said, Surely I will go with you. However, there will be no glory for you in the path you are taking, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Deborah stood up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. They went up behind him, 10,000 men, and Deborah went up with him. The passage we're discussing today is going to feature two women who are utterly worthy of an action movie. One of them is right here, Deborah. This woman is tough. You need to notice that, first of all, this is a female acting as the de facto leader of a nation in a patriarchal society. The story doesn't tell us why or how she got into this position, but clearly she had a lot more going for her than the men at that time. We get a further hint of how much she was surpassing the men of Israel when it says that she calls for Barak. Barak doesn't come seeking her out, but she, being a prophet, knows that God has been talking to Barak and telling him to man up. She says as much when she tells him, has not the God of Israel, has, has not Yahweh the God of Israel commanded you? As in, he's already told you to do this. What are you doing? Barak is supposed to be gathering troops to put an end to Jabin and Sisera. He's shirking his responsibility. And it gets worse. Listen to Barak's response to Deborah. If you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. Barak won't obey God unless Deborah comes too. And I mean, 
first off, how much confidence must he have had in her, right? Like, I, I think this shows us a bit more how, how influential Deborah was. Her very presence instilled bravery. But at the same time, Barak might have thought that having a prophet along with him would mean that God wouldn't allow the prophet to get hurt, and then he wouldn't get hurt in the situation. We can't leave out that this might have just been an act of cowardice on his part. So whatever it is, Deborah's response to Barak is pretty much as close as you can get to verbal emasculation. She said, Surely I will go with you. However, there will be no glory for you in the path you are taking, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. In case you didn't pick up on that, that's a burn. I'll have, to, I'll have to check the Hebrew, but I'm pretty sure there might be some sarcastic snaps at the, at the end of the verse. Here we have Barak, a military general, getting his medals and manhood stripped from him because he's being a coward. God will give the military victory to a woman. Now, in that day and age, um, it would have been a serious insult to, to, this would have been a serious insult to a soldier. I mean, even today, many people still hold the sentiment that women and children should be, not be on the front lines. But back then, in a world that was ruled through brute force and fueled by testosterone and not technology, manpower was a, a real thing. So here we have Barak, a man who is in one way answering God's call, call and being faithful, but in another, acting shamefully and cowardly. And we have this woman, Deborah. So my wife and I, when my wife has something really difficult uh, to do by herself, I always, I always say to her in a joking voice, you can do it. You are a strong, independent woman. You don't need no man. <laughs> I say that as a half joke to my wife. But with Deborah, I feel like she's the embodiment of that joke. She truly is the strong, independent woman who don't need no man. In fact, she's a picture of a woman teaching a half-hearted, half-faithful man what it means to take on the responsibility that should be his alone. Now, some of you, and here I'm talking to the women of Sardis Fellowship, some of you might relate all too closely to this situation. You are seeking, serving God, but there are some of us men, believing men around you, who are floundering or apathetically living out their faith. While there, there is a time for timidity and elegance, there is also a time to be a snowplow that pushes a path forward like Deborah. Your faith can be an example, and your faith can be what motivates and changes those who are apathetic. Sometimes that even means calling out the men around you for their lackluster engagement. Deborah did exactly this. Barak wasn't in the fight even though God had called him to it. She didn't beat him up about it, but she did challenge him to step up to the plate. And regardless of any man, Deborah shows us that no woman should wait around for men to get their act together when it comes to serving God. We need prophetic women in this church who show us a vision of truth and love and who can inspire us and guide us all towards bravery, like she did as she judged Israel. Okay. So Deborah and Barak go up and send a call out to the troops. 10,000 of them arrive. And then suddenly we get a strange verse that seems to come out of nowhere in verse 11. And Heber the Canaanite, uh, Kenite was separated from the other Kenites, that is, from the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he was encamped at <clears throat> Elon Betsa'anim, which is near Kedesh. I included the Hebrew there because it will be about as clear as the English for how to pronounce that. If you were like me, 
When you read this, you might be asking yourself if the author of Judges was daydreaming for a second and then accidentally wrote down the contents of that oddly genealogical daydream. This verse doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative. Honestly, you could remove this verse from the story and everything would still make sense. It, it would flow better. So what, what's going on? There's, there's actually a really important piece of background information for, for what follows. If you have a keen eye, you might have noticed something here. Out of all the people mentioned in the story so far, has anyone's family lineage been focused on? I don't mean who is someone's father, but the, rather the ancestral line of an individual. No, hasn't been mentioned. But here we have Heber being called the Kenite. Now, I'm going to pull out the Hebrew card for just one second because it's really important here. Our English translations translate the Hebrew as the Kenite, that is K-E-N-ite. For the life of me, I do not understand why it is spelled this way. The Hebrew literally says the Cainite, that is C-A-I-N-ite, that is the descendant of Cain, as in the guy who murdered Abel way back when. I'm not sure who decided on the spelling K-E-N, but it clouds some seriously cool things going on in this text. I mean, this kind of translation problem happens all the time with names. For example, did you know that the book of James in the New Testament is actually the book of Jacob? If you've read the Greek text, it begins, Jacob, a servant of God. In our history of translating the Bible into English, Jesus' brother has been called James, and so we've just kept that tradition up for hundreds of years. Why that change happened is for you and a Wikipedia page to deal with, but it is another example of translating a name or people group based on traditional English translations rather than on the actual original text. Okay. I can see, uh, or I imagine, about 15 of you have fallen asleep now uh, in my tangent on translating biblical names. So, let's cut to the chase. Heber is a descendant of Cain, and these descendants became the brother of Moses through Moses' father-in-law, Hobab. So, Heber the Cainite, in a way, is the brother of Israel and Moses. Oh, and by the way, how a descendant of Cain existed when we think the flood is... I think about the flood is a question that uh, I don't have an answer for or I don't have really time to answer. Depends on how you view the flood and a whole bunch of other things. And actually, Rod is it all figured out. So if you just want to give him a shout, he's on vacation right now at the island, but just say it's an emergency and he'll, he'll help you with that, okay? Anyways, parenthetical note about Heber, the canine aside, we get back to the story. When they reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned all his chariots, all 900 chariots of iron, and the entire army that was with him from Harosheth Agoyim to the Wadi of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Get up! This is the day that Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Has Yahweh not gone out before you? So Barak went out from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and Yahweh threw Sisera and all his chariots and army into confusion before the edge of Barak's sword. And Sisera dismounted from his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued after the chariots and his army as far as Harosheth Agoyim, and Sisera's army fell to the edge of the sword. No one was left. There it is. Barak did it. He manned up. Or, or did he? Did you catch what happened again? It was all Deborah. Barak was sitting on his hands, twiddling his thumbs, playing Xbox. I don't know. And Deborah was, had, had to get in his face and tell him that God is with him and the battle is his to fight. Actually, it's kind of worse than that. 
The picture of, is of Yahweh already being out in the battlefield while Barak is sitting here with the people of God waiting for something to happen. You know, I get the feeling the text is implying that Barak thought Deborah was going to do this whole thing for him. She did, in fact, say that Yahweh would sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. She's the only woman around, so I guess Barak just thought that she would do it for him. You can almost see Deborah just staring blankly at Barak, giving him that look, you know, like a nonverbal look. And just frustration, right? This whole situation is brutal. And to Barak and the people's credit, they do finally go. Man alive, it's easier to get three toddlers to clean up a playroom than to get these guys to have some sort of courage and ambition to fight. Despite their ap apathy, I think it's still encouraging that God still worked with them. It says God was already out in the battlefield ahead of them. I mean, you kind of expect that they might finally go out into battle charging with shouts of battle cries, only to find that God had gotten back in his car 20 minutes ago, right? But God doesn't do that, because God is willing to work with lackluster faith, cowardly faith, apathetic faith, Barak-like faith. He gives a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance to do the right thing. He fights alongside those who are unimpressively obedient, because, well, they are still just that, obedient. Let me be clear. Barak is not a moral paradigm for us to imitate. He's a coward. But with great coaxing from a brave and godly woman, Barak steps up to the plate and chooses to follow God's call for him. And God honors even that shaky, unimpressive obedience. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging. Because that means God honors even our shaky, unimpressive obedience. The question is whether we're willing to step into the fight. And let's not pretend that the fight isn't objectively ter terrifying in our day and age. We're not 13th century Israel in a physical fight to keep a nation intact. But living in our current world as a servant of the King of Israel and of the world, King Jesus, can make you encounter situations that are incredibly uncomfortable and oftentimes potentially very costly. If you don't feel like you want to step into that fight, or when you do, you do so with reluctance or apathy in your heart, you need to know that God is still in the fight with you. He still honors your unimpressive obedience. He doesn't abandon us just because it took a hundred coaxes before we finally made an attempt. He doesn't leave us in the middle of the fight because our hearts are only half with it. Just make the attempt. I don't know what you need courage for in your life to do for Jesus, but, but do it. He'll be there with you, even in your unimpressive obedience, your unimpressive faith. Lord, help our unbelief, our unimpressive faith. Okay, now to the final part of the story. This is the best and the worst part. You'll see why. <clears throat> Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canite, because there was peace between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Canite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her tent, and she covered him with a blanket, and he said to her, Please give me a drink of water, because I am thirsty. So she opened a skin vessel of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the doorway of the tent. And if anyone comes and asks you and says, is there anyone here? You must answer, no. So the general of the bad guys flees from the battle and ends up at the house of who? Heber the Canite. Well, 
Only his wife is home at the moment. But still, he's at the tent of the Canite. It says that at that time, there was a mutual peace between Heber and Jabin. They're in each other's good books. So given this arrangement, Jael does what you would expect. She hides him, gives him water he asked for, uh, not the water he asked for, but a warm glass of milk. That's really accommodating. And then Sisera says it. Stand at the doorway of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, is there anyone here, you must answer no. Did you catch that? Do you see what's going on here? Let me spell it out. Jail, the Canite, is to stand at the door where her choice to sin is waiting, crouching even, and it is a sin that will kill her brother, Israel. Are the bells going off in your head yet? Does anyone have Yahtzee? Bingo. Anything. This is a replay of the Cain and Abel story. Jael, the descendant of Cain, is being given the opportunity to either repeat the sin of her forefather or to act differently. At this point, we as readers are supposed to be chomping at the bit. Is it really going to happen again? You're supposed to be on the edge of your seat here. So what happens? But Jael, the wife of Heber the Cainite, took in her hand a tent peg and a hammer, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground. He was fast asleep since he was exhausted, and he died. Behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him, and she said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he came with her and saw that Sisera was lying dead with the, pen, with the peg in his temple. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. So do you see what happens here? Jael does act like Cain. She killed someone. But it wasn't the righteous man. It was the evil king. She reversed the story of Cain. The blood of the unrighteous is spilled instead of the blood of the innocent. Jael decides to put her trust in God's people and God's mission to bring blessing to the whole world and displays her trust by breaking her allegiance with Jabin and by ending his general's life. What a switch of allegiances. And do you hear what she said? Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. Where have you heard that before? Cain and Abel. God comes and asks Cain. Where is my brother? But Jael doesn't even wait for the question and immediately shows Barak who he was seeking. Jael doesn't hide the act like Cain, but openly shows her allegiance to God and his promise. So I don't know where you've come from, who your parents are, or what they did. I don't know what you've done in the past that would tarnish your name and ruin your reputation. Man, I don't know what you're doing right now that might tarnish your name and ruin your family's future. It doesn't matter because even if you were known for committing the first sin on planet earth as we know it, like a Canaanite would be known, God can redeem the tarnished name. Like Jael, God can reverse the scene and the sin. Not only can he, but he wants to. But it means taking courage and acting like Jael. It means aligning yourself with the promise of God he made so long ago and is bringing to completion now in Jesus. For Jael... She, challenged allegi she changed allegiances and God gave her the opportunity to undo what Cain did so long ago. She saved her brother people, Israel, and with a tent peg, put to death an evil man who was trying to destroy God's people and God's promise. So, are we supposed to follow suit? How can we imitate Jael and find redemption? Now, before anyone starts rummaging through their camping gear uh, in their closet, let's just take a second and talk about the violence being portrayed here. In Jael's time, and for a specific time and in a limited manner, God used his people as a means of delivering a final judgment to the people living in Canaan. 
the Bible makes this really clear. Israel destroying Canaan was a picture of God's final judgment. Kind of a picture. We as followers of Jesus still believe that God is going to deliver a final judgment on those who do not want anything to do with him and who act in great evil. But God says that judgment is to come. We are not called to violence in the name of God. Jesus was handed over to the violence of earth and death in the place of any who would put their trust in him. And he, he's the king. Because of that, right now, Jesus invites anyone and everyone back into Eden. Our history outside of the garden is forgiven. He only asks that he might change us back into the people of Eden. And that means bringing the life, love, and truth of God to the world. And that's the way that we, like Jael, follow and fulfill the promise to Abraham here and now. Judgment for sin against God is not ours to give. Now, am I saying that Christians should never stand up against a tyrant? Heaven forbid we ever face a situation like that. I need to make those decisions. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Christian in World War II who realized he had to try to kill Hitler to put a stop to the Third Reich. There are certainly utterly depraved and mad people in the world. And I actually think Jail was facing a group like this. So in no way do I want to make light of the situation. But I think that a helpful way for understanding the evil of the Canaanites is to consider a song by Justin Bieber. No, I, I don't listen to Justin Bieber often. But I, I couldn't help but think of a song I heard on the radio a while back after reading part of the song that comes in the next chapter of Judges. Okay, so just follow with me. Still being serious. In the Bieber song, he is singing about a girlfriend who is not a great person. He sings, My mama don't like you, and she likes everyone. While this is obviously just a throwaway burn from Bieber, it actually points to something we all intuit. What's so profound about that line is that it gets at a truth about humans in general. The mothers in our society are the standard of caring and love by which we judge the rest of our culture. Our mothers are the most tender and soft-hearted. So in light of this, now I want to read to you what the next chapter of Judges says about Canaanite mothers. Through the window she looked down. The mother of Sisera cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot delayed in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariot tarry? The wisest of her ladies answers her, she also answers the question herself. Are they not finding and dividing the plunder? A bedmate, womb, or two bedmates, wombs for every man. It's literal translation. I don't know if you picked up on that, and I'm not going to spell it out for you, but what is the state of a culture when mothers are cheering on their sons when they bring home women into that kind of particular slavery? The kind from the last line there. That, that's messed up. My, it, it, it's my mama don't like you and she hates everyone, right? If the Canaanite mothers were like that, I do not want to meet their children. And it was this kind of evil God was judging. Jael saw what was coming towards Israel and with immense courage stood up to these tyrants. So I'm not going to tell you what to do if this kind of evil was at your doorstep demanding what, people, what these kind of people demanded. But I do think it puts Jael and God's actions in perspective. So can we return to Hebrews now? and see why this passage is so important for faith. I think it is telling that it is only Barak who is mentioned in Hebrews. As we've seen here, he's the failure of the story. It takes the encouragement and courage of Deborah to bring him into the battle, and it takes Jael's bold act and, bold act and redemption of her family name to bring about the defeat of the enemy for Barak. Barak needed all the help he could get. 
and so did the church that the author of Hebrews was writing to. The book hints over and over again that this church was cowering in the face of persecution and that, and that was because of uh, a hostility coming at them because of their faith in Jesus. They were the Barak here. They needed Deborahs. They needed jails. And they needed to know that, like Barak, God would be with them even in their unimpressive faith and obedience. So where are you today? What is the Spirit saying to you? Is there someone you can encourage towards stepping into the struggle this week? Or are you the one on the sidelines of the battle, waiting for someone or something to do it for you? Or maybe you want to be in the battle, but you think your reputation and what you've done won't allow it. That's not the God of the story, and that is not God. Take a step towards him, and you'll find he's already in the battlefield. And don't think this is just about you and Jesus on this journey together by yourselves. Take a look at the next verse. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder on Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. What Deborah, Barak, and Jael did moved the rest of the people to act. Their faith was contagious. As a community, all of Israel came together to fight the evil. So, your little act of impressive or even unimpressive obedience matters this week. Our little stories affect each other. They lead us to growing together and to the, to the, to the victory in the battle. So let's pray that might happen as we get into this week. Father, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for this story of uh, women of amazing faith and then um, someone who had lackluster faith but still did it uh, with encouragement. Help us to see where we fit into that and to this story and to enact our own little stories this week of faith um, that could lead to uh, victory for, for Jesus as king and for Eden to be spread to the world more in this time here and now. And we look forward to you doing that by your spirit in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.